Hi everybody, Happy New Year. Welcome back to being a 007 Movie Reviews. This is one of the best times of the year for people who like more adult, intelligent dramas because we get a lot of those movies that are award season contenders. And that's exactly what I'm reviewing this week. We have the first ever movie that Aaron Sorkin, the celebrated screenwriter, is directed called Molly's Game. And then we have a true life thriller based on a kidnapping of an oil heir, all the money in the world. And finally, I'll be reviewing The Disaster Artist, which actually came out a while ago, but is picking up noms and may be still lurking in cinemas if you look hard enough in the UK. All right, so let's get going with Molly's game. Here's a small clip from the film. You disapprove of me. It's not personal. It feels personal when you chat up every other guy at the game except me. When you stay late for a drink with JT, but never... Have you visited his Oscar? I think it's bolted on the hood of his car. It's noticeable when you go out of your way to demonstrate that you have no interest in me. You did the same thing to Dean. These guys want to play cards with me, not you. Be that as it may. You know who the biggest winner in this game is? It's you. You know who the second biggest winner is? Look. It's you. What are you taking home? 10,000 a night now? That is my business. Literally. Between you, the dealers, and the servers, you're taking a lot of money out of this game. Not as much as I'm bringing to it. That 10,000 is 10,000 that doesn't go in my pocket. Again, my money. Your money is my money. Is it? I think we should talk about capping your tips. You want to get together with the other players who on my tax returns are called clients and discuss putting a ceiling on my wages? That's right. It'll be America's most closely watched antitrust case. Right there, right then, that fast, I lost the game. So Molly's Game is based on the story of Molly Bloom, who is an American woman contemporary to ourselves. And in the 1990s, she ran a illegal high stakes poker game in Hollywood and then New York. And the kind of people rumoured to play in her games were people like Tobey Maguire, Leonardo DiCaprio, Ben Affleck. So definitely famous and notorious people. However, she was raking the game. She was laundering money for the Russian mob. And if not illegally, then certainly unethically, she was also exploiting men with a gambling addiction to enrich herself. Unsurprisingly, she was eventually caught up in a federal investigation into the mob. And without spoiling the ending, which I genuinely didn't know when I watched this film, the film's framing device is seeing her battling with those charges whilst recounting her history. The best thing to say about this film is that it stars Jessica Chastain in the title role and she is a fantastic actress, always charismatic, always intelligent and she's playing a very smart, very no-nonsense character similar to her role in Miss Sloan which is a film that came out last year and for whatever reason was sadly overlooked but I think is definitely a similar kind of character insofar as Miss Sloan also is doing something unethical for a living but you're left guessing as to what her underlying motives and indeed morality are and to jump to the ending I do think Miss Sloan is the better film. I think the problem with Molly's game is that the director writer Aaron Sorkin wants to portray her as a, a moral champion so he acknowledges that she's running a poker game 
and we see her exploiting people with gambling addictions. So for instance, she'll say to a guy, I'll get you help, you need to leave, but only after soaking him for three days at the tables and taking a cut. But he wants her to be seen as a champion of the right to privacy. So there's a big hoo-ha about the fact that she has all her old hard drives that contain lots of incriminating evidence against her players, and she's refusing to hand them over to the feds. And so we get her lawyer, played by Idris Elba, um, giving an amazing grandstanding speech about how she doesn't deserve in a federal RICO indictment. She's just a good, smart girl who ran a game and is caught up in something much bigger than herself. And look at her. She's a good person. If she weren't a good person, why would she be trying to protect the reputation of all these guys and their families and, and avoid wrecking lives? And I guess my big problem with this film is that I'm just not buying it. I'm just not buying that someone as smart and witty and Sorkin dialogued as Molly Bloom is in this film didn't know that what she was doing wrong and didn't know that she was ruining lives and didn't know that when a Russian mobster turns up with hard cash bankrolls in a duffel bag that she's laundering money that comes off really nasty, nasty activities. So I just thought it was a very odd turn for Sorkin to take to try and make her a heroine of justice rather than portray her as a much more nuanced and slippery and ambiguous character, which I suspect the real Molly Bloom is. The other problem with the film is that as with all Sorkin, you get the highs and the lows. So with Aaron Sorkin, you get brilliant, witty, smart dialogue. And actually, often you get really witty, smart women as well. But he just cuts them off at the knees. He always feels the need to insert a father figure, literally Molly Bloom's father in this case, played by Kevin Costner, who's going to mansplain to her exactly what her motives were and everything that she did, psychobabble to her and then explain to her how she can turn her life around. And that is just patronising and repetitive to watch. The final issue I had with this film is that it's well over two hours long and it just does not need to be that long. It loses pace in the middle. It could easily be 30 minutes shorter. It could easily be 30 minutes shorter. All of this is a great shame because I think Jessica Chastain is superb. Um, You know, I've got a lot of time for Idris Elba as an actor. I think it is a really interesting story. I just think that it's a much more nuanced and fascinating story in real life than it appears on the film. And it doesn't deserve its running time. So I can see why Jessica Chastain's getting nominated. I don't see anything in Aaron Sorkin that justifies him moving from screenwriting to being a director. And overall, I think this is a movie you can wait to watch on DVD. That said, it was released in the UK on the 1st of January, so it is out in cinemas right now. It's rated 15 for strong language, drug misuse and brief violence. And it's not the and it's not a terrible film. I just think it's deeply deeply problematic in the ethical stance it takes and and actually it's just lack of interest in what might have actually been far more fascinating real life motives of its central character. Okay, so that was Molly's game. Now here's a brief clip from all the money in the world. My son Paul must be very frightened right now. I know I'm frightened for him. So to the people who took him, I don't care why you did this, but I ask as a mother that you 
think of your own children or of the child that you once were and set my boy free. Thank you. Her son has disappeared. Her mother should cry for her son. All right, enough. Let the lady go. Let's go. Oh. This guy, you want to get her son here? Cry for her son. Yes, I'm Manchester Corbo. I'm the lead investigator. Would you please follow us? Come on. Tell us more. You said you have the money. You okay? They want me to cry. Is that it? So all the money in the world is the new movie from Ridley Scott, who's famously the director who gave us Alien and Blade Runner, the original. And he's also a director who gives us occasionally sort of lower budget, thoughtful, intelligent thrillers. And I guess that's the category that this film falls into. It's also, as with Molly's game, based on a true story. And this is the story of 16-year-old John Paul Getty III, who was an oil heir and was kidnapped in the 70s by a group of Italian terrorists. And they demanded a $17 million ransom, which should not have been a problem for his grandfather, John Paul Getty I, because he was the world's first billionaire, a great oil tycoon. However, the grandfather throws a spanner in the works by refusing to pay the ransom. And of course, there are many sensible reasons for not doing this. You might not want to encourage and indeed finance terrorism. But Getty Sr., as played by Christopher Plummer, is very clearly motivated by being a miser. He says he loves his grandson, but there's no real clear evidence of that. He seems to view his grandson basically as a legacy delivering device rather than an actual human. And he is just a man surrounded by his wealth, obsessed by keeping it. He chisels pennies and he's just not going to pay the money. And he sees actually the fight for the life of his grandson as a power play with his ex-daughter-in-law, who's played by Michelle Williams. Um, Gail, the mother of the kidnappee, had had quite a nasty divorce that the grandfather got involved in. And so actually what the story really is, is an examination of that power play between the grandfather and the ex-daughter-in-law. What the film isn't is particularly interested in poor John Paul Getty III. So you do see him being kidnapped and you see some of the consequences of his grandfather holding out on the ransom. Um, but we never really hear from him. We never really examine what happened to him. And actually, I didn't know the results of this, as with Molly's game. And so I was sitting on the edge of my seat for the second part of this film. What I found fascinating is that when, you know, at movies at the end, you often have that little bit of uh, end credits written verbiage about what happened to the characters after the film. It chooses to focus on what happened to the grandfather, not what happened to the grandson. So Ridley Scott clearly is not interested really in the victim. And I find that kind of sad and kind of annoying. Um, there is a lot to like in this film. I think Ridley Scott does some superb location photography whether it's La Dolce Vita recreated Rome of the 70s to sunrise over Marrakesh to the misty English countryside in this beautiful country house or these very sort of sinister menacing claustrophobic twisting streets in a Calabrian hilltop town you really do feel the international glamour and the menace of the situation through the locations which is amazing I loved a lot of the performances. I think Christopher Plummer is chilling. I don't think I've ever seen such a chilling portrait of a miser on screen. There's a moment when his ex-CIA fixer, played by 
a kind of like out of place Mark Wahlberg, he's not bad, but what's he doing in this film, asks him, how much money would you need to feel secure? And Christopher Plummer just pauses and then almost like quietly roars more. And you believe him and it's absolutely chilling. I loved Roman Duris. I think he's a great French actor and he's very good as one of the kidnappers. And then finally, Michelle Williams is very good, as always, as the mother of the kidnappee. The only slight problem I had with her, with her performance is she chooses to give Gail a kind of Catherine Hepburn mid-Atlantic accent, which is very um, conspicuous, I guess is the word I would use. It really brought me out of the movie whenever I heard it. Maybe it was a true-to-life choice. There's very little on the internet about Gail, so I don't know if that's really how she spoke. But I felt it was perhaps a misstep. In terms of things I didn't like as much about the film, I I do think it's a little bit too long. As with Molly's Game, it could have been a bit shorter. I think it suffers from a lack of pace in the middle section. Um, Scott is clearly not interested in the victim's experience, which I find bizarre. Wahlberg, I just feel he's in the wrong film. And overall, it's a film that, while I really admire its pacing early on and its willingness to play with the linear timeline and go back in time and see, you know, Grandpa Getty as a younger man and how ruthless he was, I just feel that it didn't really coalesce for me. It felt somehow disjointed and I don't know, it just didn't feel altogether satisfying. I think there's also something in the casting of Christopher Plummer where he's perfect as the octogenarian oil tycoon. But when they're going back to show him as a younger man, it's quite cheap and quick makeup. And I wonder if that's partly to do with the fact that he was obviously inserted into this film um, late on and whether if they'd had more time, it would have been done better. So overall, I mean, I did like this film a lot more than I liked Molly's Game, but I still think it's not perfect. It was still somehow unsatisfying, even though it contains a lot of elements that I really, really liked. And I still think on balance that unlike Molly's Game, it is worth seeing in the cinema because one of the ways in which it really excels is just such some of the beautiful visual imagery in the film. So that's the review of All the Money in the World. It was released on Friday the 5th of January in the UK, so it's out on screens all over the country. It has a running time of 132 minutes and it's rated 15 for strong violence, injury detail, threat and language. So on to the final movie of the week, The Disaster Artist. Here's a short clip from the film. Don't take a person who's just in a crazy Actually, space. we need like five more minutes for lighting. No, I'm ready now. Let's go. Let's go, Sandy. Come All right, on. Let's, uh, let's roll. Do it. Set. Yeah, we're rolling. Ready. Camera has speed. And action. What line? What did line? I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Okay. Action. What is line? I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Scene 112, take 13. Mark it. Action. I did not hit her. I. Okay, okay. Line. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark.
Take 17, action. I hit her. No. Do you want to change the line? Script is script. Script says same. You're doing great, man. We'll get there. Action. 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 You have to say it loud. I can't hear in here. Say action so I can hear her. Okay. Okay, so we finally get to the disaster artist, which is also based on a true story as Molly's Game and All the Money in the World, but is totally different in tone. It's a laugh out loud comedy. And it's based on the story of this real life guy called Tommy Weasel. He is very unusual and unique. You should definitely try and follow him on Twitter or check out YouTube footage because... I don't really know how to describe him other than he's very eccentric and unforgettable in the way that he speaks. And he was a bizarrely rich guy. No one really knows where the money came from. No one knows how old he is. No one knows which country he's from. And he came to America and wanted to get into movies and took himself with the utmost seriousness and passion. And it's a very winning quality when you see someone who we know kind of isn't talented but who has such self-belief and is so uncomplicated in that respect it's just charismatic and winning and unable to break into Hollywood because no one's going to cast this guy he just looks and sounds like a total weirdo he decides he's going to make his own film because hey he's got the money and he does it with his best friend Greg Sestero and they make this film called The Room and Tommy believes this is going to be a serious dramatic hit he keeps it running in theaters for 2 weeks so that it can qualify for the academy awards and is shocked and horrified when he finds people laughing at it not with it because it's so preposterous it's often been called the worst movie ever made and today it's a cult film you can find it at midnight screenings everywhere and it has become a movie that's quote so bad it's good the amazing thing about Tommy Wiseau is that he has embraced this in fact he has rewritten history in this beautiful remaining positive manner in which in which he argues that he always intended to make a really funny film and it's just a beautifully funny brilliant uplifting story about a guy who never gave up on his dreams as preposterous as they were and financed them into reality so the story of Tommy Wiseau has been taken up by his fan James Franco who has also directed this film as well as starring in it as Tommy Wiseau in an absolutely pitch perfect performance capturing the weirdness the accent everything and it's a performance that he's recently won a golden globe for so you know maybe more awards yet to come um, it also stars James Franco's brother Dave Franco as Greg Sestero and Seth Rogen as one of the people on the set of the film and really what the movie does is just show you the craziness of Tommy how he wasted his money but also on the darker side how he became more manipulative and difficult to work with on set and exploited some of the actors working with him so it's not it's a comedy but it does have a dark backing that all comedies need and then it moves through and we see the film made um, absolutely no perfect recreations of some of the famous scenes in the room and we get the premiere and, and Weezo realizing that not everyone finds it as funny as him I think there's a lot to be said for this film I really found the first half of it very entertaining James Franco is hilarious and it tells you a lot about the superficiality and nastiness of Hollywood that simply cannot accept people who don't fit into certain sort of prefabricated molds of what it wants but I did find it was a bit of a one note film a one trick pony and as someone who hasn't seen the room um, I just found it 
lost interest for me as it carried on. Like I, I just wasn't that interested in seeing these scenes recreated that I'd never seen in the first place. I also found the sort of the cliche of two buddies who then fall out with their makeup at the end a little bit thin as plot goes. So this is a film that's worth watching for James Franco's impression. You can do that with clips. You can do it by watching the film. I think if you haven't seen The Room, it's going to be a bit of a challenge and maybe it's worth checking it out beforehand. I also think it's fascinating that Franco kind of refuses to dig behind the Weasel persona. Like you get one scene where um, Dave Franco confronts him and says, you know, where are you from? What is your age? You, you realize this is not normal behavior. But Franco kind of seems to be enamored of Weezo and to allow him to continue with his charismatic, ambiguous persona. And maybe that's the best thing. But I think that in a movie that is over an hour and a half long, if you're just going to do an impression, that isn't enough if you're not going to somehow uncover what makes Weezo Weezo, right? So yeah, from that perspective, I felt it was a little bit thin, as I've said. But The Disaster Artist is gaining plaudits. You can still watch it in UK cinemas. It has a running time of 104 minutes and is rated 15 for strong language. So there you have it. Three interesting, but in their own ways, flawed movies that are going to be getting a lot of awards chatter over the next couple of weeks. I hope you watch some or all of them or whatever you see at the movies, you have a good time. I'm going to put out another episode at the end of this week very shortly that covers both The Darkest Hour, so the new Churchill World War II film for which Gary Oldman has been widely nominated for his performance. I'm also going to go back and review the Churchill film that came out earlier in 2017 as a contrast and then one of what I think was one of the best films of last year, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, uh, which is out on release in the UK on Friday. So You've got that to look forward to if none of these three took your fancy. Thank you for listening.